When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Consuelo Mack. On this week's Wealth Track podcast, the investment opportunities surfacing in the volatile stock, bond, and real estate markets. Causeway Capital's Sarah Ketterer, Capital Group's Karen Choi, and Canyon Partners' Robin Potts share their perspectives next on Wealth Track. Hello, and welcome to this Wealth Track podcast. I'm Consuelo Mack. Albert Einstein observed that in the midst of every crisis, lies great opportunity. Well, as the financial markets churn around us, that is the attitude of our three guests, each an investment pro who is taking advantage of a sea change in market conditions. Sarah Ketterer is CEO and co-founder of global value firm Causeway Capital and portfolio manager of its flagship Causeway International Value Fund, a winner of Morningstar's prestigious International Stock Fund Manager of the Year Award. Karen Choi is a fixed income manager at the highly regarded Capital Group, where she specializes in investment-grade corporate bond portfolios. Robin Potts is co-head real estate investments and director of acquisitions at Canyon Partners Real Estate, the real estate arm of global alternative asset manager Canyon Partners. They recently joined me for a Tearing Down the Pink Wall Influential Women in Finance event, hosted by the UCLA Fink Center of Finance at the Anderson School of Business, UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, and the financial literacy organization WISE, Women Investing in Security and Education. I kicked off the conversation with this question, what is their primary focus in this extremely challenging investment climate? What's always important, regardless of the economic environment or geopolitical environment, is valuation. So we focus on valuation because that is the only solid ground you walk on. Everything else is moving. But if you can determine precisely what you're willing to pay based on very conservative assumptions, then you have an investment thesis and now you can go to work. Otherwise, there's so many different distracting and conflicting events occurring all at once. You couldn't even get out of bed if you didn't have some sort of discipline on how to deal with that. And that's through valuation. And when you're talking about valuations, you're looking specifically at uh, individual securities, individual stocks. You're looking at stocks globally. You are value managers. So you're looking at valuations as a value manager. I read a recent interview that you just did with Morningstar where you said, for a value manager, you're screaming with joy um, as the markets collapse around us. Um, So talk to us about um, the valuations that you all are seeing uh, at Causeway. Put them into perspective. Well, I just think about um, as much as I don't enjoy growing old, there are certain benefits. I started my career out of college and saw the 1987 market crash that happened in the U.S. and it was terrifying. And I didn't know what was going on. And 10 years later in Asia, there was an Asia financial crisis and stocks collapsed. This is what I mean by valuation. If you think about what a company has, it has assets and liabilities and has net worth. And often, as you think about net worth in terms of that's really the book value, and would you pay some multiple of book, would you you pay even book value for the business? What kind of return on its equity does it earn? 
those are some of the calculations we do. We're always measuring how much cash does the business generate? How much cash will it generate? And if you discount that cash to present using a discount rate, and that's really important because now the discount rate's rising, then you determine what the business should be worth today. And in that 97 Asia meltdown, stocks traded for the level of cash they had on their balance sheet then. Literally, their market capitalization so dissolved, there was nothing left. And it was a buyer's dream. So that's why we get exuberant when we see irrational selling because investors can, and they did this in March of 2000, they sold everything. That was the uh, TMT, telecommunications, media, and technology bubble bursting. And then in 2020, March of 2020, we had a very brief sell-off until rescued by central banks and, uh, and governments. And that was due to COVID, it just a panic. It really happened in more like February and then March of 2020, collapsing markets. And, and now, interestingly, in anticipation of what is a really an economic cycle, we were supposed to have them, even though we tried to avoid them. We're seeing rising interest rates. They will continue to rise in most regions around the world, with the interesting exception of China. And monetary liquidity, the amount of liquidity that's put into the banking system that's ultimately lent and therefore creates economic stimulus, that's being reined in by central banks. And all of that makes for a very sobering investment environment for speculative stocks, those where valuations were irrationally high. And now they're coming tumbling down, which is something that we appreciate because that's what we do for a living. We analyze, and as I talked about before, that that solid ground is the valuation, and it has to be made up of earnings that you can actually measure, not some idea there might be someday earnings from a business. That's, that's more like uh, speculating than it is investing. But this period is reminiscent of which of the market declines that you just mentioned are the valuations that you're seeing now as as good from a value manager's perspective as attractive as they were you know in i don't know 1987 in the you know global financial crisis or in march of 2020 we're in a very unique environment every every meltdown has some resemblance to prior but they're all different. And this okay. one is inspired by the fact that we call the term over-earning. Stocks literally delivered, especially in the US market, much more than they should have. Earnings went up, yes, but valuation multiples went up more. Right, the and price that, earnings multiples just expanded like and crazy. They did, right. they did. And that has a lot to do with what central banks have been doing and the Fed in particular. The Fed created $4 trillion of additional money supply from in the pandemic period. And this created just so much money chasing a finite amount of assets or what we call asset price inflation. So assets prices went up, namely stocks, homes, um, old master paintings, fine bottles of wine. I don't care what it is. It all went up. And now, of course, we have uh, a central bank very nervous about, about wage inflation, a real wage price spiral. So the stocks that are interesting today, they're already pricing in a full-on recession. It's oh. already in the price. So okay. that's, what's, that's what we're looking for is where the market has already discounted the downturn, and yet the tightening has just started. Karen, let's bring you in because a lot of the financial press covers the stock market more than they do the bond market. But what is going on in your market, Karen, is phenomenal. Paul Volcker in, you know, in the late 
1970s, early 1980s, basically, you know, murdered the economy in order to bring inflation down. Right now, we've had a we've had a 40 year bull market in bonds. Uh, it looks like that is finally reversing. Uh, Jerome Powell, the current Fed chair, has said, you know, that he's going to do what it takes to bring inflation down. It's running at 8% levels in the consumer price index. The Fed target is 2%. That's going to be a lot of tightening. So this is a dramatic moment for you as well as a bond manager at Capital Groups. What are you all focused on at Capital Group in the fixed income world? Just to point out, so Capital Group, we are a private firm. And so we don't give any specific investment recommendations. And each analyst and portfolio manager actually has different views. There is no house view. So everything I say today um, is my personal view. And it could change tomorrow, just to let everyone know. (laughs) Um, But I would say, you know, as an investor, it's, it's our job to really predict the future. And my crystal ball is very, very fuzzy right now. There's a lot of snowflakes in there. But I would say one of the things that I was very convinced on that rates would definitely go higher this year and inflation is for real and it's going to stay around for a longer time than people expect. Why do you say that, Karen? What's convincing you that inflation is here to stay? It's actually some really just even simple numbers. Just look at where um, unemployment is and job openings. You have a disconnect of six to seven million unemployed, but 11 million jobs out there. So that wage inflation is real and it's going to take some time for it to change, right? Um, the, the supply issues are real and they're not getting any better. You're hearing the supply issues and supply constraints may not really improve dramatically for everyone anytime soon. So those will still be lingering for some time. So I am in the camp that um, inflation is real and stagflation is a real possibility here. And I have never really invested in this type of environment in my entire life. Very few um, people have, incidentally. <laughs> I mean, you, you would have had to have been, you know, a full-blown adult uh, portfolio manager in 1980. So that was, you know, more than 40 years ago. So overall, I have a fairly cautious outlook and I came into the year with a high level of cash and a fairly cautious outlook. And I I was short duration. I did think I was genius because I covered my duration short, very like back in March. Explain what duration is. Duration is basically um, the length of the maturities of your portfolio. And in terms of where the five and 10 year were at the time, they were under 2%. Um, and they st- we started up a year closer to 1%. Right. And we're closer to 3% today. Right. Five and I thought, treasuries. And I, mm-hmm. Yeah, treasuries. And I thought I was genius because I, w- I was short duration from 1% to 2%. And I covered that. But no, look at where we are today. So in terms of where interest rates will end up at the end of the year, I'm not the expert there. <laughs> I'm not the Fed watcher. But I do think there's chances that it could be around the same or higher. In terms of uh, stagflation, though, could be real. And I do think, you know, my sense is that we go into a recession in the next 12 to 18 months. Stagflation uh, being that inflation's pretty high and economic growth is pretty slow. Will slow down. And I think Europe will lead, uh, uh, will lead that. And then we will follow. 
their economies are slowing uh, faster and more dramatically than our economy is. Yes, right? and a- energy prices. I'm hearing about shortages everywhere globally and even in the U.S. And that this is because I'm, I'm still close to the utility sector, but there are going to be some shortages over the summer. So um, there could be some really high energy prices. The latest numbers I saw was electricity prices were up for consumers 11%. Those numbers could be a lot higher over the summer. So that's going to eat into the consumer's pocket. So um, I don't think that changes anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And that dynamic is going to play out over the rest of the year. I'm not telling a very rosy picture, but I would say as an investor, it's very similar to what Sarah said. It's exciting. Um, there are opportunities out there and we're just continuing to watch all the different things that are going on in the market. There's some companies that I really, really like, and the valuations are starting to look a little attractive and we're reinvesting at higher rates too. I'm buying some company bonds, very short duration, like three to five year bonds yielding 5%. I couldn't get anywhere near that two years ago or even a year ago. So there are some interesting opportunities. You feel sick to your stomach sometimes when you're making those investments, but at the same time, you know, there are some exciting things going on. Everyone is watching the Federal Reserve. A criticism of this Federal Reserve is that it it didn't have the nerve to to rein in inflation. It was not going to be as firm as Paul Volcker was in the early 1980s. And Jerome Powell has come out and said that he would do what it takes. But it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. Uh, you know, we've only had two interest rate increases uh, so far this year. How closely are you watching what the Fed is doing? If the Fed turns out not to be as strong as it's saying it's going to be in fighting inflation, what does that do? I think they'll do 50 and 50, but I don't think they 50 do 50 basis points or a half I don't a percentage th- I don't, point. I, yes, I don't think they do 75 basis points or 100 basis points. I right. think that would, that would really spook the market. Um, and I, I just, I think they're going to be slower and they're going to be steady unless something dramatically changes. I don't see them going off course too much. Robin, real estate. Um, everybody cares about real estate. You, you deal in the commercial real estate field. Um, I know there's this new series on TV about WeWorks, an amazing story, but what are you talking about at, at Canyon? The real estate market is is a different space than Sarah and Karen just described in that, you know, it's private market transactions. And within the private markets, um, the story is going to take longer to actually play out from a valuation perspective. The public markets really reflect, uh, you know, kind of immediate reaction to all of the news. And in the private real estate markets, um, owners of assets can, can wait and see and be more patient on transacting. Uh, unless there's a forced event, which is causing them to transact. So um, there's a lot of discussion right now about where valuations for commercial real estate are headed because that price discovery needs to play out. It's not a perfectly transparent uh, process. Real estate, generally speaking, is um, on the one hand, benefits tremendously from an inflationary environment because For many asset classes within real estate, rents can reset frequently, for example, in apartment projects where you can uh, be resetting rents annually for tenants. On the one hand, that's a positive in this environment for real estate. But on the other hand, uh, real estate is generally a leveraged asset. And so the rising rate environment and the relationship between your borrowing costs and cap rates is something that um, at the moment... Uh, things are a little bit upside down and, and you have a negative leverage situation with, with respect to where cap rates are relative to, to rates. And, and cap rates are what? 
Uh, so cap rates are the uh, the rate that you apply to an income stream to value real estate. So it's you know the inverse of of a equity multiple in, in the public markets, um, and uh, so right now, for example, prior to the volatility, you might see an apartment building trade at a three and a half cap rate because you could buy um, you could buy an asset utilizing uh, debt in the low threes from an interest rate perspective, and now that same debt is in the mid fours, but the cap rates haven't moved up uh, commensurately, and so um, there is a, a negative leverage uh, concept uh, in the market currently that that needs time to play out. Um, and then the other thing that we're paying a lot of attention to, because uh, we invest a lot within the development space, so we're highly involved in terms of asset creation um, and the construction of new assets. Uh, within that space, the inflation environment is really affecting the construction costs, and, and overall, uh, the supply chain issues are also driving up construction costs. So we spend a lot of time evaluating um, the relationship between the rent growth, which is very strong relative to how the costs have changed and whether that equation still makes sense to proceed forward on a new opportunity. And I, I read one of the uh, reports that Canyon had put out uh, to clients uh, about conditions in the marketplace. And you just mentioned, so multifamily uh, buildings are still very attractive as an investment, but things uh, like office space is not necessarily, and I'm, I was wondering how you all look at the the great resignation that we've you know we've heard about uh, the fact that so many uh, millennials are are really very reluctant to go back to the office, and it's a tight labor market, so they have some clout. How is that uh, affecting the finances of the commercial real estate and the office space, for instance? As you pointed out, multifamily fundamentals have been almost universally strong across the board and across different profiles of multifamily. Um, the office sector has been um, quite disparate in terms of outcomes for specific buildings. And so um, within you know, the post-COVID environment with flexible work and a hybrid work environment and the need for employers to essentially um, be able to provide office space that's attractive and has amenities and, and the ability to um, kind of induce people to come back and return and be together as a team. Um, there has been kind of a, a major distinction between high quality office projects. Um, and so we've seen tenants really demonstrate a flight to quality preference versus your more commodity type office space in general. And it's going to take a fair amount of time to play out. But um, many cities across the U.S. have outdated uh, an older office stock, and um, that ultimately needs to be kind of repurposed or transitioned into a new use over time. So we're actually seeing a number of uh, real estate owners and operators propose conversions of office space to other uses, um, while your you know newly built high quality office in, in strong locations um, and growing markets across the country, we think will really outperform. I know you don't do retail housing per se, single family homes, but do you have any thoughts? What's your sense of the housing market? The housing market is has been incredibly constrained from a supply perspective. And as a result, um, you've seen within the single family market, just an incredible price appreciation, which 
has made it very challenging for first-time home buyers, um, and there's been a just a tremendous amount of competition. And now you've compounded that uh, price escalation uh, with rising interest rates and seeing mortgages now uh, at the five percent level for the first time in in you know over a decade. That combination really, in in my view, tips the equation very much in favor of renting. Um, so that rent versus own equation and and what is your monthly payment. Um, uh, even with the significant rent growth increases that you've seen across the U.S. within the apartment space, um, uh, we think that that it ultimately just continues to strengthen the apartment fundamentals, uh, given the single-family home market with the combination of the price increases, the supply, uh, constrained supply, and the increase in the mortgage rates, um, kind of all combining together to make that less affordable. So I'm going to switch now to strategies. And Sarah, let me uh, let me start with you. You mentioned, uh, and I mentioned from a, a value investor's perspective, uh, the more stocks decline, markets decline, uh, the better it is from a valuation perspective. What are you doing? Where are you seeing the biggest opportunities? Mm, it's where the market has been most savage uh, in the in the realm of companies that actually have earnings and cash flow. As I mentioned earlier, the stocks that have fallen the hardest this year have been those that have not. What and to put this back in sort of fixed income parlance to fit on an equity model, those will be very long duration stocks. In other words, there's no cash today. It's all promised sometime so far out in the future that you're going to be waiting a long time to get it, and that makes them especially rate sensitive. So as rates are rising and are expected to rise quite a bit more. Those are the stocks that have fallen the most, or think of it as multiple shrinkage. So that's not where we're looking, but where we are looking are areas like banks, for example. We've seen this in prior cycles. They tend to sell off. In other words, their multiples fall and they tend to underperform as you are approaching recession. And we're expecting, if it's not a technical recession, certainly a significant slowing of the U.S. economy and I, I agree. I think Europe's going into recession, has all kinds of problems. There's no reason not to go shopping, even though it looks like there's going to be an economic slowdown because markets are very anticipatory. Equity markets price in events long before they occur. So they price in the downturn way before it even happens. And the most sensitive stocks to do that are typically cyclical. And amongst those, the biggest culprits are the banks because they're just levered. They're, you think of them, they've got a little tiny amount of... Um, assets and they do quite a lot with it they're obviously in much better shape than they were in the 2008 global financial crisis that's a pretty low bar but they're in so many different markets as markets are beginning to anticipate a slowdown a significant slowdown the bank stocks have tumbled and interestingly and that's why i bring them up to levels that we saw during the global financial crisis to those sorts of valuation levels think about it on a on a price, we call price tangible book value. So you take the, remember I talked about assets less liabilities as net worth or book value. If you strip out anything that's intangible, the squishy stuff, and, and you end up with real book value, that's, that's, um, that is real value for shareholders. The, when those price to um, tangible book value multiples get to something like 0 0.25, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, those are crisis levels. Again, very reminiscent in particular of European banks that, that we saw in the global financial crisis. But what's in, different now, and this is why we get excited, because that's just a sort of blanket sell-off. They were all decapitated at once. 
And that's what we call indiscriminate selling. But these banks are in demonstrably better shape than they were back then. They have raised lots of capital. They have huge, what they call capital cushions. So they have, they have equity to assets. The equity portion is much bigger now, and it's far in excess of what their bank regulators in their regions demand. And they're already being allowed, despite the fact that we are approaching an economic slowing period and rates are rising, to return capital to shareholders. So their own regulators are signaling that they're in sufficiently good shape. They can carve out some of the money that they're earning and send it back to our clients, their shareholders, and in terms of dividends. And, and I mean, there are a couple of banks that we've seen in Europe that are doing buybacks over the next three years. We'll stock represent. buybacks. Yeah, mm-hmm. stock buybacks. They will, they'll buy back some of their shares outstanding. And when, they, when you buy back stock at such a low price to book value, it's very accretive. You've got book value per share, so many fewer shares, the, the ratio looks much more attractive. Let's put it that way. So from a price right. to book perspective, we're getting a tremendous bargain. And you know there are many different industries, but what they have in common now is they're generally cyclical because it, once February 24th rolled along and Russia invaded Ukraine and this incredible human tragedy unfolded, investors... Uh, they do what's called shoot first and ask questions later. A lot mm-hmm. of stocks were just sold. They don't understand yet where earnings are headed. But if you look out beyond the next 12 months, the next 24, the 36 months, it's much easier to make a projection because you can, we can look through the downturn to the recovery and start to price that in. If you're a, someone who expects cataclysm, you shouldn't own stocks at all. Just put your money under the pillow and um, or maybe it's crypto you should own. I have no idea. <laughs> so, Karen, what about putting your money into bonds? You know, are, are you when I'm listening to Sarah, you can see as a value manager that she does have nerves of steel. She's been through these cycles before. What What's your strategy uh, in in the bond market? Are Are there you know huge opportunities being created? Is the great bond you know bull market of the last forty years is it definitively over? I think it's interesting because I do think uh, people believe that if you invest in the bond market today, that you're going to just continue to bleed money. But if you look back at history, some of our own funds, um, the returns are actually very similar in rising rate environments and declining rate environments because we get to reinvest at the higher rates. For me, it's about making sure that I'm reinvesting and I'm reinvesting in companies that I think are just going to do well. In, in general, it's really being disciplined and not really being scared and, and just selling everything or going all into cash. It's really being disciplined about continuing to reinvest because I think at the end of the day, depending on how, dra- how dramatic the treasury rate moves are going to be, you could still have an okay year in corporate bonds. Might not be this year, but over the long term, your returns could be quite okay over the long term because think about it. Tenure at three percent, your overall yields you're getting four or five percent on a corporate investment grade corporate bond, whereas you were getting almost nothing two years ago, right? So that's a pretty big difference, and you're you're continuing to invest when rates are going higher. So I'm not as as negative, but at the same time, um, you have to continue to reinvest. Robin, strategy uh, as far as your financing the kinds of deals. What are the strategies that you are doing um, at Canyon? We're nimble in that we can invest up and down the capital stack. We have both debt strategies and equity strategies. I think mm-hmm. um, one of the the more interesting areas within real estate right now uh, is within the credit space. 
Um, so as a direct lender, you know, we can originate senior debt or subordinate debt uh, on real estate opportunities ranging from, you know, existing assets with a bridge and lease up or transitional play to uh, construction financing. And in markets like this, where um, banks are pulling back and taking a wait and see approach or just a more risk off approach generally. Um, other types of lenders uh, have pulled back pretty significantly as well across uh, CMBS and the CLO markets for, for real estate. Um, you're seeing a, a, you know, a gap that alternative direct lenders can fill at much higher absolute yields than you were looking at at the beginning of the year um, with you know, very strong borrowers with substantial you know, subordinate cash equity investment in high quality real estate. It's a pretty exciting kind of adjustment to the market. It, uh, for a direct lender within uh, commercial real estate, in, in my view. If you had one piece of advice uh, for investors in this volatile, highly charged market environment, uh, what would it be? Robin, do you want to lead us off in answering that? Sarah mentioned this a bit earlier, that everything just got either kind of cheaper if from an equity perspective or from a debt perspective, you know, more yieldy than it was just a short while ago. So, um, so long as you have the capacity to, to be making new investments right now, this is uh, a much more opportunistic environment to be finding interesting things to do. So um, I think it's pretty exciting across the board. Sarah, what is your one piece of advice to investors? Well, I have the same piece of advice, regardless of the market environment, and that's be diversified. We have a, a group of quantitative specialists on our team who have what's called a, this sounds very complex, it kind of is, a multi-factor risk model. And it allows us to understand at least the market portion of risk, because there are risks where there's market sensitivity known as beta, and there's volatility risk, and there's size risk, and value and growth risk. Being able to parse that out and know just how you're positioned and the reason why I keep emphasizing this is because you just don't know what's going to hit you. Like we've had so many crises and exogenous events pop up and we went from the pandemic and then to this invasion of Ukraine and exacerbation of inflation. So even though I talked earlier about cyclicals, we have economically defensive stocks in the portfolio too. The key is to be defensive and, and cyclical and do so with the better companies because we really don't know which way this is headed. We, we do expect inflation, but, it, um, but just how severe the downdraft will be and what other event might occur, who, who knows? <laughs> Karen, same question to you. Don't panic and look to invest for the longer term, because I think if you have time and you can invest two to five years out, I think you end up making the right decision. I wouldn't react to the everyday movements in the, the markets. I would just not panic, take a deep breath, look at the valuations and invest for the long term, because in the end, I think that's how you succeed. In part two of our Tearing Down the Pink Wall podcast, our panelists will share their career journeys and advice on becoming influential women in finance. For previous interviews with other financial thought leaders and great investor guests, go to wealthtrack.com and please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. In the meantime, make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.